0: Welcome to Engage Your World, brought to you by Engage 360 Ministries. Friends, welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Engage Your World. I'm Ibrahim here with Matt, and today we'll be restarting the podcast. After several months of downtime related to unplanned circumstances, we're excited to be back with you. And as we get things started, Matt, tell our listeners how we're going to approach this new series of material.
1: Yeah, so as we were thinking about what do we want to do in restarting the podcast, you know, we are really eager to do so, uh, but trying to think about what could we offer that would be valuable to new listeners, to people who don't even know about our ministry, but also could serve as a resource to people who have went through our training, and as I was thinking through this, what started to jump out was the idea of doing an investigative study through the book of Acts, looking not at the Bible verses we can use to share the gospel, but what did they actually do in the New Testament? For anyone who's went through our training, you know that this is a part of what we cover, and we typically in our trainings just do a comparison of Acts 2 and Acts 17. What did Peter do at Pentecost, and what did Paul do at Mars Hill? And what we're looking at is, again, not what bible verses can you use to share the gospel there's a whole host of different ways you can do that using passages throughout both the old and new testament however what we're doing here is looking at what did they actually do what were the practical approaches that they took who was it That they spoke to how did they speak to them how did they present christianity and then what can we take away that we can apply today so i think it's a little different than maybe a lot of people have seen before it's a little different approach and that word approach is really probably the best way to sum it up this is not a gospel presentation method that we're teaching we're not going to be looking at that and drawing that out of each passage but instead we're looking at the approach that the apostles took to the task of evangelism. And what we know from at least Acts 2 and Acts 17, and I think we're going to find a lot of the uh, same themes emerge from other passages, is that there were these common aspects that were similar in what they did. However, the particulars in any given conversation were very different at times. And As we have processed through this when we were starting Engage 360, refining our training, we came up with an acronym that really faithfully summarizes this approach that we see emerge from the book of Acts in particular. The acronym actually spells out gospel. So it's G-O-S-P-E-L. G stands for gauge your audience. O stands for offer common ground. S stands for shift to Christianity and the gospel. P for provide evidence, E explain the gospel, and L leave with a clear next step. And so what you and I are going to do, Ibrahim, is uh, look at some of these passages and see what emerges. Does this acronym fit any given passage or what elements do we see come out? And one thing I do want to add up front, though we've come up with this acronym and we see these principles emerge from a variety of passages that we have looked at, It's not a step-by-step approach. It is an overall framework, and you'll see things shift around a little bit in any given conversation, but these elements typically are going to appear in some form or another. So that's what we're going to look at. So we're going to go through the whole book of Acts, every interaction that we can find where one of the early Christians was interacting with some individual or group of non-Christians and look at what did they do. How did they handle it? And what can we learn from that? So I'm really excited to dive in. I think it's going to be really fruitful. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And the other thing that I'll add is, though Ibrahim and I are taking time to prepare for these sessions and these times that we have to spend with you all who are listening, we aren't doing a deep, in-depth technical study. That's not the purpose of this. This is meant to be more of an interactive investigative study. This is something that you can do right alongside of us. So you might want to get your Bible out. You might want to get a notepad. You might want to pause before we begin each session after we share what passage and and what chapter and verses we're going to be covering. You may want to read through them yourself uh, once or twice. Familiarize yourself. And then Study right along with us. So, hopefully, we can keep this interactive and enjoyable and something that you feel like you are a part of. So, I guess with that, Ibrahim, I'm ready to dive in. If you have any other comments you want to add, uh, go for it. And then we'll uh, jump into Acts 2.
0: Well, I just want to point out the fact that the book of Acts is a great training resource, especially when it comes to learning about discipleship and evangelism. So, as many of you know, Acts, as the name suggests, essentially records the early events of the apostles and early Christians as the gospel spread from Jerusalem, its central point, to other surrounding areas. So that's something to keep in mind as we approach this series of studies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Crucial to know, and where better to look at how we should help start, grow, and expand the church today than uh, the original, right? As we dive into Acts 2, for those that don't know, We'll probably start in verse 14 with what we'll read through together here. But there is some important context there that you had these Jews who were gathering together for Pentecost and that the Holy Spirit comes down on the first Christians. And that after they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they began speaking. And all of the people who are there from a variety of different areas who have unique languages— Now, of course, they probably all understood Hebrew and or Aramaic, but they had a native language because this is after the Diaspora. So the Jews had been spread out throughout that region in the ancient world, those regions. And so they had different sort of native tongues, if you will. And what's happening here at Pentecost is when Peter and others began to speak, the people hear them each in their own native language, not in Hebrew or Aramaic, or one same language. They speak in one and are heard in many. And so there's a lot of confusion. And if you're familiar with how this ends, there are people who start accusing them of being drunk or under the influence of something. So with that, Ibrahim, would you mind starting in verse 14 and reading for us from 14 through the end of the chapter there, or maybe not the end of the chapter, let's go through
0: 41 if you're up for that. Acts two fourteen and following. I'm reading from the ESV. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be declared that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And this shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 20. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did before him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul in Hades, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord your God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. Excellent. Thank you for reading
1: that for us, Ibrahim. It's just so much going on here. And this is going to be every time we go through one of these, we're going to try to keep these at about 20 to 25 minutes for you guys. Hopefully make it a little easy listening, something you can get some value out of takeaway, but won't be overly extensive, but there's so much we could dive into. So let's begin to apply our acronym. Let's start at the beginning with our G so gauge your audience. So as we had already shared, these were Jews who had come in for the festival. So these are likely observant Jews, uh, meaning they're probably at least many of them fairly sincere. Uh, They're taking it seriously. They're doing the kinds of things that a devout Jew would likely do. And I think one of the things that's important to give as a backdrop for this is thinking about why is it? that there were jews at the time who rejected jesus as the messiah you know sometimes we might overlook this maybe others are very familiar with it and think about it regularly however it's important to know because what was the expectation or or maybe a common expectation at the time from what i understand would be that the messiah was supposed to be a conquering king now What they had in mind, again, as I would understand it, is something more like the Messiah coming and taking over the role that the Romans are in. (laughs) So whereas the Romans are ruling the ancient world and they have people overseeing each region underneath the Caesar again as i understand it they're sort of wanting to flip that but just putting the messiah in charge at the top and then the jews can be ruling over all of these people as i understand that was probably a big part of the expectation and we know that's at least fairly accurate because over and over again when we read in the new testament we hear how they would go into the synagogue and reason from the scriptures that the messiah had to suffer and die now ibrahim i'll ask this so that we can be interactive and we would do this with an audience if they were here but i'll let you be the audience for now for fun so in thinking while well, jesus or the messiah was supposed to be a conquering king well he did conquer <laughs> he did conquer something but it wasn't the romans what would you say that it was ibrahim as you think through the scriptures
0: i'm going to do the multiple choice and say Uh, Jesus conquered both sin and death through his crucifixion and subsequent death, I should add, and he demonstrated victory over sin and death by his resurrection.
1: That's right. All of mankind has a common enemy, sin and death, right? That is our common enemy, every one of us. Now, we, we sort of participate along with them in some ways too, which is the sad thing, but that was the enemy that the Messiah was coming to defeat. And when you think about it, that's far more significant than conquering the Romans. So I think the overall feel of a lot of the Jews at that time, and even Jesus's own apostles, was, wait a second, how can this guy die? How can he be the Messiah if he died? He got defeated by the people he's supposed to be defeating. But he wasn't coming to defeat the Romans. He was coming to defeat sin and death, which are far greater enemies and far more powerful than the Romans. And so he actually did more, though initially many of them thought he did less. And so that's an important thing to keep in mind. These weren't all hypocritical, self-righteous, legalistic people who thought they were earning their way to God on their own. Many of these individuals here at Pentecost may have been devout, sincerely trying to seek God. I think Paul was an example of that. Very similar. I think he was sincerely trying to seek God and uh, zealously serving Him. He was just very confused and very wrong. So, that's our audience. We have this variety of Jews from across the ancient Eastern world come together for this festival They see what's going on. There's a lot of confusion. There's some claims, supposedly, that the apostles and some of their followers are drunk because of what's happening. And Peter uses this opportunity to address them. So that's our G. You guys might want to add more. You might have some other notes you want to add. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that, but we're going to shift on here. So our next letter is O, offer common ground. So. We see here that Peter, knowing his audience, and maybe Ibrahim, I'll have you jump in here again. So knowing his audience, what are some things that he can begin to appeal to because they are observant Jews in town for a festival?
0: I think in this context, Peter's appeal to prophecy is an important detail that he brings out during his speech. So in Acts 2.13, when the naysayers resort to mockery and they're advancing the claim that, you know, these people are drunk. Peter begins to correct their thinking by mentioning the prophet Joel uh, as part of his appeal. That's an important detail that he brings out that that audience would have understood as a way of showing this is what was supposed to happen, having been previously prophesied. This wasn't just, you know, some event out of the blue. That's
1: right. That's right. Yeah. So his offering common ground, a major part of it is him appealing to these Old Testament prophecies, these figures that they know of. And you see him kind of build on this throughout the whole message that he shares, the sermon that he shares. But that is a major part of it because they're going to know these scriptures. They're going to know the scriptures. Again, many of these people are at least knowledgeable and maybe even faithful and sincere in their seeking. And so he is using that to establish some common ground and begin to show them this is not a a radical departure. We're not rejecting Judaism. This is actually the fulfillment. This is the messianic fulfillment. And so he sets out to show them that. So yeah, starting with Joel, and then you know Ibrahim, one of the other things that I think of as I think about, okay, common ground. Though it's a little bit unique and it maybe goes in with the P of provide evidence, he appeals to events in the life of Jesus that at least likely would have been known as supposed events or people would have known other individuals who saw some of these events or at least attested that they saw them. And so when I think of verse 22, where he says, Men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. <laughs> so he's, he's saying, Look, you guys know about these events. These are not secret things done in a cave, done on the other side of the world. These are things you know of. You're confused about why it didn't play out the way you thought it would. But you know about these events. And so I think that's another part of the common ground. And he just lays that out. And then he kind of, in the shift, I would say, he brings a little bit of fire. He does not hold back. And we tend to see this when the apostles or even when Jesus is dealing with Jews who are fairly observant, especially the Pharisees, the scribes, they are not hesitant to be a little bit more harsh, a little bit uh, more direct, and to to bring some fire. I think it's still often done for the sake of shaking them out of their slumber. You know, you see Peter continue here, if you're reading along in verse 23 of chapter 2. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he goes on to appeal to David, kind of shifting. And, and that's where, again, when we say this is a, an approach and a framework, it's not a linear, okay, you do this one, and then you do that one, and then you do the S step, and then you do the piece. It's going to be an overall framework, but you'll see how they intermix these things to build their case based on who their audience is. He appeals to that common ground, Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament heroes that they would look up to, and he uses that to build his case. Okay, So then I think the shift begins there in 23. He appeals to the historical events that they would have known about, and he begins then to provide the evidence that it actually happened and— that the messiah was to suffer and die and so he kind of i would say starts to begin to combine a little bit the p provide evidence and the e explain the gospel The big chasm that he has to overcome with these jews is understanding the messiah had to suffer and die he didn't lose He won. And that was, I think, again, what they had in their head. Well, he couldn't be the Messiah because he lost to the people he was supposed to defeat. And so the task of Peter and Paul and others is to say, no, that wasn't the enemy he came to defeat. He won because he was trying to defeat sin and death, as you said so well, Ibrahim. So providing evidence, well, what is a major thing that he begins to appeal to in that comparison of David? David. What is the contrast that he makes here, Ibrahim, between David and Jesus?
0: I would say, judging from Acts 2.29, the most obvious or perhaps most recognizable contrast is that David's bones are still buried while Jesus is still alive.
1: Absolutely. But he builds on that, and he's saying, look, you guys, you hold the patriarch David up. But David even said that this would happen. He's appealing, and it's just brilliant because he's hes not saying, and this is important that we get this, he's not saying, I, Peter, am telling you this brand new thing and making it up, and you now have to believe me. He's saying, no, look at what David, your own patriarch that you're all going to follow, look what he said. Well, how do we make sense out of that other than that there was one who was going to never Ultimately and permanently taste death. Instead, he was going to be raised up. And so it's just brilliant. But how I can tie this in for us today, and this is where we'll get into our first tie in as we begin to wrap up and kind of get through the end of this passage, is don't present things to individuals you interact with in a way that functionally is saying, believe me, Matt, I've come up with this thing. Look how smart I am, look how how much faith I have, look at me, and then now you have to believe what I tell you. I think one of the takeaways we can get from what we see here in the New Testament in the book of Acts is over and over again, point to Jesus, and it's him that someone has to agree or disagree with, not you. And so the more we can do that and point to Jesus and say, here's why I think Jesus is the one who knows what happens after we die. Can we have forgiveness of sin? How do we get to God? Can we do enough on our own to merit it? I don't have any way to know that directly. So my opinion doesn't mean anything. But I do have really good reason to believe Jesus is the one who knows and here is what he said, and I just believe him, and I'm appealing to you to consider what he said, and that you should believe him as well. But the more we can do that, where we're pointing away from ourselves and to Jesus, the more successful I think we're going to be. Because what I sense, and and Ibrahim, I'd love for you to jump in on your experience interacting with people, but my sense is that often when people are pushed away by Christians and they think that they're self-righteous or they're judgmental or they think they're better than everyone— What is coming across, intentionally or unintentionally, from us as Christians is seemingly saying, you all have to believe my opinion. My opinion is going to determine the fate of all of humanity. Now some might be thinking, well, I know people of different religions or who reject religion that do the same thing and think that their opinion applies all. Well, that may be true. The difference is we have a lot of baggage and a lot of history we're carrying, and it's unnecessary because Christianity is not true because you, the listener, me, Ibrahim, you uh, think it's true. It's true if it actually happened, and this is what we get from the New Testament. So, you know, Ibrahim, jump in just real quick has your experience of interacting with people who kind of have that sense of Christians been something similar where they think we're essentially saying, you know, I'm right, my opinion's right, you have to believe me because I'm better than you?
0: Well, I haven't had that specific experience in my interactions with people while witnessing. I have had people bring up other religions and they'll say, well, why is Christianity any better than any other religion? So I think you're hitting on something there. I think in that case, they would basically put all religions uh, on equal par in terms of their truth claims or what have you. That might be an example of uh, pluralism. Well, and I think that
1: the legitimate thing is they're saying, well, everyone's opinion is valid. And I would say, yeah, I think it's good for you to have your own or to come to your own conclusion would maybe be the way I would wanna say it. The question is, how do you determine Ultimate destiny of the entirety of humanity. And I think Christians should have the humility to recognize we're not determining that. We're saying, here's one named Jesus who claimed that he had equality with God, who claimed that he had the authority of God, he did these things to demonstrate that he actually had that authority, these miraculous things, namely, most significantly, as we read over and over and we're gonna see as we go through this series, his resurrection from the dead. And that's the basis upon which I say, he's the one who knows, and I believe him. Having covered the rest, we've kind of covered our G, gauge your audience, O, offer common ground, S, shift to Christianity, the gospel, P provide evidence. The most significant which is going to be the resurrection. These things that they know of, these events, but most significantly the resurrection. E He explained the gospel. He gives that understanding that the the Messiah had to suffer and die. And the distinction between David and Jesus is that David is still in the ground. His bones are in his tomb, where Jesus is not. And that's a significant difference, and something which David actually foretold. And then after he's done that, they're cut to the heart. Uh, his message reaches these individuals, at least a significant number of them. And so they're wondering, what do we do? So Peter goes to on to explain. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, he's tying that that in because, remember, that was what started the whole conversation is, these guys are drunk, and he's saying, no, they actually— are fulfilling the prophecy of joel that was uh, part of what happens or can happen because the holy spirit has been received that there's something miraculous going on here this is a sign that there's something more to this event at pentecost that these people are witnessing than meets the eye that there's something else going on here and so it's effective and so they ask and he says repent and be baptized every one of you and then talks about that now one thing that we're going to talk about whenever that word is used is, what does it mean? And so I'll not give it away too much, but if you want to do some uh, study ahead, look at Acts 17, where Paul also tells the uh, philosophers at Mars Hill to repent. But think of the difference of what it is that they're turning away from that's keeping them from god what are their misconceptions that they're they've been believing and following that are wrong and then kind of compare to what we're seeing here so here in acts 2 if we think about those misconceptions and, and ibrahim feel free to jump in as you want here so their misconceptions were that they thought the messiah was a conquering king physically that was gonna kick the Romans out. Uh, They didn't understand that the Messiah had to suffer and die. And perhaps wrapped into it was also that it wasn't by their own works or by anything like that that they were going to get in, but it was by the work of Christ. And so repent for these Jews who are hearing this message means understand that you can't do it on your own, understand that the Messiah had to suffer and die And that the proof that he really was the Messiah is that he was raised from the dead. So his miracles he had done and then his resurrection from the dead. And so that is what they're having to repent of, to turn away from, to accept this new thing, to have a change of mind, which is literally what the word repent means, this change of mind. And so this is what had to happen. And again, we're going to touch on this every time we go through a new section of Acts and look at if the word repent is used. What is it that these people are repenting of or from? And I think it's going to be interesting. And again, if you want to do some study ahead, go ahead and turn to Acts 17 uh, after we finish here and look at that. And I think you'll find it pretty interesting. So, Ibrahim, any closing thoughts or comments?
0: As a closing remark, I wish to encourage believers who may be fearful of sharing their faith. I think that's an important thing we need to say right out the bat, is Acts presents a first century roadmap of sorts for addressing people who are yet to become believers. And as you're reading through Acts, notice that these early believers and representatives of Christ brush shoulders with lots of different people, and that's going to be the same uh, in your circumstances. You'll uh, come across diverse people, diverse opinions, and so forth, and diverse practices, and the way we reach others is going to be different. There's no cookie cutter approach and that's important to know. It's sort of a trial and error, if you will. And finally, I think the more we do so, the less fear we will have.
1: Absolutely. Well, thanks for sticking with us. We are excited to be with you guys in the weeks and months ahead or if you're listening to this in the future. Um, we are really eager to go through here. And again, we're going to probably keep these to about 20, 25 minutes in the future. Uh, We had our intro on this one, but we are uh, really excited to be with you guys. And Ibrahim, thanks for uh, leading us off here. Really looking forward to diving into the rest of this.
0: Certainly. Well, thanks again for listening, friends. We appreciate you. Please check us out at www.e360mforministry.org. And once again, thanks and take care.